هذا القرآن يوحدنا لطريق الخير يوجهنا الله تعالى أنزله ورسول الله معلمنا ورسول الله معلمنا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد My dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so let us start off with a review from last week with Allahi Ta'ala. We had some pretty difficult things that we discussed last week and I want to see how many of you retained that. Number one, we said a hadith in terms of its authenticity is divided into seven categories. Is divided into seven categories. Who can remind me what those seven categories are? You don't have to give me all of them, but as many as you can remember. Go ahead. Uh, authentic. Okay. 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 Mawdu'a ahsant. So those are the seven categories. We said in terms of authenticity, a hadith will be divided into seven categories. The highest of those categories is a hadith which is sahih. Then the second level is sahih li ghayrihi. Third is hasan. Fourth is hasan li ghayrihi. Now we get into the weak hadith. And the lowest or the highest, actually, the highest type or the lowest type of weak hadith? As in the highest type of weak hadith? Yeah, the highest of the lowest, exactly. The highest type of weak hadith is da'if. Then you have da'if jiddan. And then you have that which is mawdu'a. Excellent. Then number two, we talked about <clears throat> in terms of the hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab, which we're studying today, that there was a reason of revelation behind it, or what we call sabab al-wurud. Who remembers what the sabab al-wurud of the hadith was? Why was the hadith brought forward? Go ahead, Hisham. Uh, because of the story of Um Qais, she, she said that anybody who wants to marry me, he should uh, do hijrah. Excellent. So it's the story of Muhajir Um Qais, that there was a woman in Medina, she made it a condition that if this man wanted to marry her, he would have to migrate from Mecca to Medina. When this was mentioned to the Messenger of Allah this is when he mentioned this hadith. But as we mentioned, according to Al-Hafid ibn Hajar and ibn Rajab, this, while this story is true, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the hadith. It doesn't have anything to do with the hadith. Now the last question before we begin, and this is the challenging one. Who remembers the chain of narration for Imam al-Bukhari for this hadith? The chain of narration for this hadith till Imam al-Bukhari. And we said that there was, you know, gems and jewels inside this chain of narration. <laughs> this is gonna, Sorry? Okay, there was a Qurashi in it. Excellent. Very good. That is excellent. So the teacher of Imam al-Bukhari, his name was Al-Humaydi, and he was the Qurashi. And in Sahih al-Bukhari, Imam al-Bukhari narrates a hadith, Qaddimu al-Quraysh, that give preference to the Quraysh. That is why he chose uh, Abdullah bin Zumair al-Humaydi. Excellent. I want, let's try someone else. Hamza, were you going to answer? Yeah, I have some in my notes, but... You have some in your notes. Yeah. You should have all of your notes. I can understand if some are in your memory, but they should all be in your notes. <laughs> I said I can understand if some of them are in your memory, but all of them should be in your notes. But go ahead, give it a try. Any way you like. So you said the uh, Al Humaydi. Yes. And then uh, Abdullah bin Zubair. No, Abdullah bin Zubair is Al Humaydi. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 There's uh, Sufyan ibn uh, Uyayna. Okay. 
Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, yes. Bin Ibrahim. At-Taymi. Excellent. 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 So this hadith starts off from Amr ibn al-Khattab, who heard it from the Messenger of Allah going down. You have Al-Qam ibn Waqqas, you have Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi, you have Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. And he becomes a very crucial individual in this hadith, as we will come to see within Allah Ta'ala. Then from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, the route that Imam al-Bukhari took after that was to Sufyan ibn Uyayna, and then from Sufyan ibn Uyayna to Abdullah ibn Zubair, who is known as Al-Humaydi. And we said the jewels in this uh, chain of narration is that all of these narrators are from the lands of revelation. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, he puts this hadith inside Kitab al-Wahi with this particular narration. The wisdoms behind it being two. Number one, all of these narrators are from Mecca or from Medina, which are the two lands of revelation. And then number two, Al-Humaydi, Abdullah ibn Zubair, he's actually Qurashi, he's from the Quraysh. And the Prophet ﷺ, as narrated in another hadith inside Sahih al-Bukhari, he said, give preference to the Quraysh. And Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, he wanted to start off, you know, abiding by the same hadith that he included in his Sahih. And that was the chain of narration. Now, continuing on with this chain of narration, let us introduce something new. And that is the levels of hadith in terms of the people that narrate them. Levels of hadith in terms of people that narrate them. So the highest level of hadith in terms of people that narrate them is what we will call mutawatir. The highest level of hadith in terms of people that narrate them is what we will call mutawatir. And mutawatir, there is no precise definition for it, but the generic or general definition that the scholars give is that there are so many narrators in each level of narration. So many narrators in each level of narration that it is impossible that all of them could have made a mistake or all of them could have gotten together to fabricate a lie. So there's so many narrators in each chain of narration that it is impossible that they could have gotten together to make a mistake or to fabricate a lie. So that is what we will call mutawatir, what we will call mutawatir. Now, the opposite of mutawatir is ahad. And ahad means that there are a number of narrators in this hadith, but it's not to a level where an individual is certain. It's not to a level where an individual is certain. So ahad hadith within them themselves will not provide certainty, will not provide certainty. So you can have a general number as 10, you can have three, four, whatever their number there are in each level, it is not to a level where there is certainty. Now these ahad hadith are further divided. They're further divided. So you have a hadith which is gharib. And hadith which is gharib, you find this particularly in the sunnah of Imam al-Tirmidhi. So Imam al-Tirmidhi uses the term gharib, and what the term gharib means is that there's only one narrator at a particular level. There's only one narrator at a particular level. Then a hadith becomes aziz if it has two people in it. Sorry, it becomes mashur if it has two people in it. And a hadith becomes aziz if it has three. A hadith, sorry, reverse that, reverse that. A hadith becomes mashur if it has two, and it becomes... <coughs> Sorry? You said reverse that. Yes. For the first time you said, mature if it has two, Aziz if it has three, but you're going to reverse that. That's Aziz if it has two, mature if it has three. So, I know Aziz has three, and mature has two. Yeah, that's what it is. So, the Aziz 
has three and the mashhur has two. Now these are on each level. These are on each level. Now why this is going to become important is because of this hadith when you come to look at it. You'll notice that at the generation of the Sahaba in this hadith, you only have one narrator. You only have one narrator who is Umar ibn al-Khattab. And then from the generation of the Tabi'een, you'll see that you start getting a couple of them. You start getting a couple of them. So you have Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi, who is from the Tabi'een, and Al-Qam ibn Waqqas, who are from the Tabi'een. Now, these narrators, what is interesting, is that when Umar narrated this hadith from the Prophet he is the only one to narrate this hadith. And then from Umar, the only one to narrate from him was Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi. And then from Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi, sorry, from Al-Qam ibn Waqqas, the only one to narrate was Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi. So up until, you know, uh, Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi, and then you get Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, the only one to narrate from Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Taymi was Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. So in this chain of narration, you're getting one, 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 one. So this is what we will call a gharib hadith. This is what we will call a gharib hadith. Now, is a gharib hadith within of itself a hadith which is weak? And the answer to that is no. There are some scholars that did consider it. Um, there's a famous scholar of hadith by the name of Al-Hakim, who has the book Al-Mustadrak. He considered any hadith that only had one chain, one narrator in each level of the chain, to be a hadith which is shadh. This was his definition of shadh. But in reality, this objection is not true, that a hadith can be authentic, even though there is only one level of narration in each tabaqa, uh, of each level of grading. So now let us take an example of what is an example of a hadith which is mutawatir. A hadith which is mutawatir. Meaning that it is narrated by so many people that it is impossible that they could have gotten together to make a mistake or fabricate a lie. The most common and popular example for this is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, مَنْ كَذِبَ عَلَيَّ مُتَعَمِّدًا فَلْيَتَبَوَّ مَكْعَدُهُ مِنَ النَّارِ Whoever lies upon me intentionally, then let him prepare his seat in the hellfire. Let him prepare his seat in the hellfire. This hadith is the ideal and primary example that all the scholars mention for a mutawatir hadith. For a mutawatir hadith. Now this categorization of mutawatir and ahad, you'll see from a traditional perspective, it's quite problematic. That up until the fourth generation, this concept of mutawatir and ahad doesn't really exist. The scholars aren't really using this terminology. In fact, it wasn't a concern for them whether it was ahad or mutawatir as long as the chain of narration was connected and the narrators are trustworthy. Now, when did this come into play? When did mutawatir and ahad come into play? When deviance started inside the Muslim faith. When deviance started inside the Muslim faith. So you get to the fourth century, now the deviance is becoming rampant inside the Muslim community. The scholars of usul al-fiqh are the ones that developed this categorization of mutawatir and ahad. And what they wanted to derive from this is what will benefit certainty, what will give you certainty, versus that which will just give you something which is doubtful. Now what were they trying to do with this? What were they trying to do with this? What they were trying to do with this was that when it came to matters of aqidah, they said we can only accept that which gives us utmost certainty. Meaning that the hadith had to be mutawatir. And if it wasn't mutawatir, we weren't going to accept it. And this is what some of the early groups that deviated in aqidah used as a principle. That if the hadith was not mutawatir, we would not accept it in aqidah. And that is why this is what led them to reject so many elements of faith. 
Things like belief uh, in the punishment of the grave, they denied. Belief in you know, certain aspects of Jannah and Jahannam, they denied. Because they weren't mutawatir. Belief in, you know, in, the, in the Dajjal, they, didn't den uh, they ended up denying. Because it wasn't mutawatir. Belief in the Mahdi, they denied. Because it wasn't mutawatir. So all of these things, that is where this deviance actually started. So this is just a background into a, the science of Hadith. Each week we will gradually be taking a bit. Go ahead. Which sect is it? That's not relevant right now. When we study heresiology, Bin Al-Naital will mention it at that time. We'll mention it at that time. So now this hadith, as we mentioned, the chain of narrators in this hadith, we will consider this a gharib hadith. Because from Umar ibn Khattab all the way until Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, there's only one person narrating at each level. And then from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, we have a plethora of people. You know, we're talking about 200, 400 people that are narrating from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. Now, even though you have two to 400 people narrating from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, that within of itself is not enough to make this hadith mutawatir because the tabaqat or the levels before it only have one narrator in them. Only have one narrator in them. So now let's actually get to the wording of the hadith itself. Let's actually get to the wording of the hadith itself. I heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, say, actions are judged by motives, by niyat. So each man will have that which he intended. Thus he whose migration was to Allah and his messenger, his migration is to Allah and his messenger. But he whose migration was for some worldly thing he might gain, or for a wife he might marry, his migration is to that which he migrated for. And Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he says at the end of this, of this narration that this hadith was narrated in the two most authentic books that were written by mankind. The two most authentic books that were written by mankind. And then he mentions the name of Imam al-Bukhari and the name of Imam Muslim. So let us start off with the conclusion of this hadith when Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah talks about the books of hadith, when he talks about the books of hadith. So every Muslim should be familiar with six books of hadith. The every Muslim should be familiar with six books of hadith. And these six books of hadith is what we will call the six authentic books of hadith. Because in reality you will find that the vast majority of authentic narrations are found in these six books. So firstly, let us define by what we mean by authentic narrations. We gave you the definition last week that for a hadith to be authentic, it needs to meet five conditions. I'm not going to repeat that. But what I will mention over here is that if you wanted to calculate all of the hadith that are authentic, that they are either sahih, sahih li ghayrihi, hasan and hasan li ghayrihi, what number of ahadith would you get? What number of ahadith would you get? Scholars have tried to enumerate this and their figures roughly vary between 25,000 and 35,000. So all of the authentic hadith, they roughly vary between 25,000 and 35,000 ahadith. Now the vast majority of these authentic hadith will be found in six books of hadith. They will be found in six books of hadith. The first two are of the utmost importance. They are the Sahih of Imam al-Bukhari and the Sahih of Imam Muslim. The Sahih of Imam al-Bukhari and the Sahih of Imam Muslim. And these two books, when they are put together, they are known as the Sahihain. They are known as the Sahihain or the two authentic books of Hadith. Then the next four books, you get the Sunan of Imam al-Tirmidhi, the Sunan of Imam al-Tirmidhi, the Sunan of Abu Dawud, the Sunan of Ibn Majah, and the Sunan of Al-Nasai. These are known as Ashab al-Sunan, and these are the four books known as Al-Sunan. So if you ever hear Al-Arba' Rawahu Al-Arba', it is referring to these four books. The Sunan of Imam Al-Tirmidhi, the Sunan of Abu Dawud, the Sunan of Ibn Majah, and the Sunan of Al-Nasai. And then these four books combined with the two, 
These are known as Sahih uh, Sitta, or the six authentic books of hadith that every person should be familiar with. That as an individual, you want to look up a hadith, these are the first six books that you will start off with. These are the first six books that you will start off with. Now, for is the, are these the only books of hadith that actually exist? No. In hadith terminology, the scholars go all the way up until nine. So sometimes they will mention rawahu at-tisa'a, rawahu at-sab'a. So what do the scholars actually mean by that? What do the scholars actually mean by that? So when they mention rawahu at-sab'a, that the seven narrated this hadith, what the scholars are actually referring to are the six that we already mentioned. And then depending on using the terminology, the vast majority will include the seventh being of Imam Ahmad, the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. Then you will get a minority that say, no, the seventh book is actually the Muwatta of Imam, of Imam Malik. The Muwatta of Imam Malik. And generally speaking, anyone that came after Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, when he says As-Sab'a, he is referring to the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. He's referring to the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. Now, if he says At-Tis'a, what is he referring to? What is he referring to? Rawahu At-Tis'a means the six that we already mentioned, added on the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, added on the Muwatta of Imam Malik, and added on the Sunan of Ad-Darimi. Added on the Sunan of Ad-Darimi. These together are known as the nine books of Hadith. These together are known as the nine books of Hadith. So that is starting off backwards, when we're talking about famous books of Hadith, these are nine big books of Hadith that a Muslim should be familiar with. The first six being the most authentic of them, and the largest of them being the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. In terms of most narrations recorded, it is the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, rahimahullahu ta'ala. Now, actually starting off with the wording of this hadith. And it's starting off with the wording of this hadith. He says, That indeed, actions are but by intentions. This term, innama, in the Arabic language, what it benefits is exclusivity. So when the description or the adjective is mentioned, this adjective is exclusive to the noun that becomes before it, to the noun that comes before it. So in the Quran you will find in Surah Al-Hujarat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةِ إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةِ That indeed the believers are nothing but brothers. So this exclusivity of brotherhood is affiliated with the believers. Similarly, over here, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Meaning that there are no actions except that they have an intention behind them, except that they have an intention behind them. And this shows us that there is not an action that is consciously done, because that is what the Sharia takes into account, actions that are consciously done, except that it has an intention behind it. And the intention in Islam will be one of three. You can have one of three types of intentions. Intention number one is what is a righteous intention, where one is seeking reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Intention number two, is a religiously neutral intention. So a person does not seek reward from it, nor is he fearing any punishment out of this. And then intention number three, is where a person makes an evil intention. Where a person makes an evil intention. Now, out of these three categories of intention, two of them a person can attain reward from. Two of them a person can attain reward from. Number one, it is the intention that is good. So a person that makes a good intention, he will get rewarded not only for his intention, but he gets rewarded for doing the action as well. So for doing the intention, he gets one reward, and then when he actually does the action, it is that action that is multiplied by 10, up to 700 times, and much, much more than that. That is when an individual has a good intention. 
that which is a religiously neutral intention. So for example, a person is eating because he is hungry. This is a religiously neutral intention where there is no reward and there is no punishment. And then the third one is where a person has an evil intention. So for example, a person makes an intention that he's going to go and rob the bank. He's going to go and rob the bank. Now let's play out the various scenarios that can happen. This individual that's going to go and rob the bank, let us just say he makes the intention to go and rob the bank and then he actually goes and does it. Over here, this person is uh, punished or he has a sin written down for him for his intention and then one sin for actually doing the bad deed. One sin for actually doing the bad deed. Scenario number two is that this person makes the intention that you know what, I'm going to go and rob this bank and then as he's driving, he's really, really miskeen, subhanAllah, his car gets a flat tire. He doesn't go anywhere, he gets stuck in the middle of the, of the highway. Let's just say on, on Deerfoot Road. Then he's stuck over there. Is this person still held accountable that even though he didn't do the deed? The answer to that is yes. Because he made the intention and he started to do the action and his intention did not change. His intention still stayed the same. However, over here, he gets the punishment for the intention alone. He gets the sin for the intention alone. And then number three, third case scenario, is a person, you know, now we're going to transfer a bit from, to, you know, between Jeddah and Medina or Mecca and Medina. He's riding on the street, he's like, I'm going to go and rob a bank in Medina. And then as he's riding on the street, he sees those signs that say, Allah and say, Alhamdulillah, and say, Subhanallah, and say, Astaghfirullah. So as he's going, he sees this sign, and he says, you know what, man, I shouldn't rob a bank, especially in Medina. So he says, you know what? I repent from my mistake. I'm not going to do this deed and I'm leaving it for the sake of Allah in hopes of attaining reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this person, his initial intention was something evil, but the fact that he stopped for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he now gets one reward for changing. He now gets one reward for changing. So those are the two categories where an individual can incur reward. Those are the two categories where an individual can incur reward. Now continue on with the hadith, he says that indeed actions are by intentions and every man shall have that which he intends. Every man shall have that which he intends. So now the question arises that when you look at these two statements that indeed actions are by intentions and every man shall have that which he intends. They sound very very similar, they sound alike. And this introduces you into a new principle when you study texts that they have this principle that to establish a new meaning takes precedence over repetition or emphasis. It takes preference over repetition and emphasis. And that is what the scholars said over here. A minority group of scholars said that you know what? The Prophet repeated these two points in different words to emphasize the importance of intention. While this is true, the meaning that you can establish a new meaning from the hadith is more deserving, is more appropriate. So in the first part of the hadith, the Messenger of Allah is talking about the actual intention itself. <inaudible> that every person, that every action is but by intention. And every person shall have that which he rewards, uh, which he desires or that which he intends. This is now actually talking about the reward. This is actually now talking about the reward. So one is talking about the conclusion that he desires, and then the second one is talking about the reward that he wants to incur. And this is the difference between the two meanings. This is the difference between two statements that sound similar, but in meanings they are actually different. So the first one is talking about the end conclusion he would like to see, and then the second statement is talking about the uh, reward that he would like to attain, the reward that he would like to attain. 
And this shows you, subhanAllah, the concept that we were talking about last week of where the Prophet ﷺ was given Jawami al-Kalam. He was given this concept of concise speech. Now when you look at this first part of this hadith, that indeed actions are by intentions and every man shall have that, that which he intends. Scholars took just this first part of the hadith and they developed what they called Al-Qaida Al-Kulliya or a complete principle out of it. A complete principle out of it. And this is where you will get an introduction to it that if you were to study all of fiqh, let's just say the fiqh books behind me, if you were to study all of the fiqh books behind me, you would find that all of fiqh is divided into five principles. All of fiqh is divided into five principles. And by these five principles, what we mean is that these are reoccurring themes that you will find in every act of ibadah. Reoccurring themes that you will find in every act of the sharia. What are these five principles? What are these five principles? Principle number one, is al-umur bimaqasidiha al-umur bimaqasidiha that affairs will be judged based upon their motives affairs will be judged based upon their motives <laughs> to give you an example of this you see two individuals who are praying two individuals that are praying one individual is getting double the reward of the other one individual is getting double the reward of the other how is that possible they're doing the exact same actions the way that becomes possible is the intention so for example someone walks in Let's just say for Salatul Fajr. He walks in for Salatul Fajr. They're both praying two rakahs. One individual is getting double the reward. Let's not talk about khushua. Let's not talk about the intricate you know, details of the heart. But let's just talk about the intention over here. One individual can get double the amount of reward than the other. How so? The individual that walked in and he prays two rakahs, this individual, he only intended to pray the Sunnah of Fajr. He made no other intention. Individual number two, he comes into the masjid, he makes wudu, and now he prays as well. This individual can get double or, or triple the amount of reward. How? That in the same two rakahs, he makes the intention of entering the masjid. He makes the intention of, uh, after wudu, praying two rakahs. And he makes the intention of the sunnah of fajr. So the same people are doing the same act, however the intentions are different. And person number one is getting the reward of the sunnahs of fajr only, and person number two is getting the reward of three things. The, the sunnah after wudu, the sunnah of entering the masjid, and the sunnah of the fajr prayer. Another example, one person, two people are eating. One person is getting a reward for his action, another one isn't. What is the difference between the two? They're eating the same food in the exact same manner. The difference is that one has the intention to eat this food for the, with the intention of worshiping Allah, and the other one has the intention that he's eating this food just because he is hungry. Just because he is hungry. So they use this principle, al-umur bimaqasidiha, to differentiate between the two. Principle number two, al-yaqinu la yuzulu bishak. That certainty is not voided by doubt. Certainty is not voided by doubt. How does this principle come into play? This principle comes into play, an individual, he enters into salah. And at this time, he cannot remember if he made wudu or not. He cannot remember if he made wudu or not. What does this individual do? What does this individual do? What does, you want to answer? Go ahead. He goes and makes wudu. He goes and makes wudu. Why? Because the certainty that he is on is that he doesn't have wudu. The doubt that he is on is that he might have wudu. So the certainty over here always overrides the doubt. Now let's reverse the scenario. A person is in salah, and man, he's feeling some pain in his stomach. He had some like, you know, mirchi biryani or something like that. He's had this food and he's feeling some pain in his stomach. 
And he's like, man, I don't know if I broke my wudu or not. What do I do in that situation? This individual, he's certain that he entered salah with a state of wudu. But he's doubtful, did my wudu break or not? This individual, he will stay in his salah until, as the Messenger of Allah said, he gets certainty that either he hears a sound or he smells something, then that certainty is broken. Then that certainty is broken and then he will go and make wudu. But up until that point, he remains upon certainty that he did not break his wudu and his salah is still intact. So that is the second principle. Al-yaqeenu la yazulu bishak. Principle number three. Al-mashakkatu tajlibu at-taysir. Al-mashakkatu tajlibu at-taysir. That hardship brings about ease. Hardship brings about ease. Very simple examples for this is when an individual is traveling. So the Messenger of Allah he talks about traveling, that traveling is a portion of punishment. So there the Sharia comes to bring about ease. What are the eases that the Sharia brings? When an individual is traveling, he can combine and shorten his Dhuhr and Asr and his Maghrib and Isha. Right? Another ease, a person is traveling, it's the month of Ramadan, is he required to fast? No, he's not required to fast. He can make that day up outside the month of Ramadan and there's no sin upon him whatsoever. There's no sin upon him whatsoever. So in the presence of hardship, the Sharia will always come to bring about ease. The Sharia will always come to bring about ease. So how many principles do we have so far? We have three principles so far. Alaikum salam Principle number four, Al-Ada Muhakkama. Al-Ada Muhakkama. That the norms of the people, the customs of a people will take preference and will take precedence. Now this is a very, I guess, difficult principle to understand in terms of its application. But let us understand it this way. An individual is getting married to a wife. A man is marrying his wife and there are no agreements between them in terms of what type of housing he will provide for her, what type of clothing and food he will provide for her and so on and so forth. So the man, mashallah, let's just say he is a very rich individual. And he says, you know what? I will treat my wife like absolute dirt. You know, none of you guys do that. He says, I'm gonna treat her like absolute dirt. She wants an apartment, I will get her an apartment in the slums of Calgary, one small room where her and her children can stay. She wants food to eat, I'll buy her a bag of flour and she has the running tap water. You know, she wants a bed, Khalas, we go to the dollar store, we buy some sheets, she can lay that down on the floor. Now according to the Sharia, this would not be allowed. This would not be allowed. Because the Sharia commands us to, uh, in the Quran, وَعَاشِرُهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Now traditionally scholars translated ma'roof over here to mean in goodness. But ma'roof over here doesn't just mean goodness. It means whatever this woman is accustomed to. So whatever the woman is accustomed to prior to marriage, the man is responsible to provide after marriage as well. So whatever the, the, man is, uh, the woman is customary, accustomed to before marriage, then she is to be provided with the exact same thing after marriage. Similarly, I'll give you another example. This is a more practical one. This happens more commonly. A man and wife, they get married and the, woman, the man says that for your mahar, for your dowry, I will take you for hajj. I will take you for hajj. So this woman starts thinking, you know what? I'm going to be staying at the Hilton when I go to Mecca. I'll be staying at, you know, these towers when I go to Medina. We're going to be riding first class on the, in Emirates. And you know, all of these things, she starts having these big dreams. 
they show up, you know, they're taking a bus from Calgary to Toronto, and then from Toronto they're taking like Air Transit, and from Air Transit they're taking some other broken down plane. She eventually gets to Medina, and mashallah, even in Medina, they're staying in a tent outside of Masjid al-Nabwi. She's like, what's going on? Here the Sharia says that since the man and the woman, they didn't agree to a specific category of Hajj that they would go to, Al-Ada Muhakkama, that the norms that she is accustomed to will take precedence. And whatever she is used to is what she, the man is responsible for providing, what the man is responsible for providing. So do you guys understand this principle now? Whatever, you know, these are just marriage related issues, they're easier to understand. Another example is that let us just say there is a dress code in your country, there's a dress code in your country. So to go against this dress code, it would be against one of the rules of the Sharia. So for example, studying at the Islamic University of Medina, everyone is wearing pure white, and the sisters that are in Masjid al-Nabawi, all of them are wearing pure black. So an individual to now come and dress opposite to this culture, he could be considered sinful. He could be considered sinful according to some scholars, but according to the majority, he's just going against one of the principles of the Sharia, and it is highly disliked to do so. So for him to wear something else other than the white thobe or white garment in a place like Medina or in a place like Mecca, then this would be something that is against the norms of the people. So we can repeat the four principles we've taken so far. What are the four principles we've taken so far? Go ahead. Okay. Excellent. So the first one we mentioned is al-amur bi maqasidiha that that actions will be judged by their motives. Second one, al-yaqinu la yazulu bil-shak that certainty is not devoided by doubt. Number three is al-mashakatu tajlibu at-taysir that hardship will always bring about ease. And then number four. Al-Ada Muhakkama. Al-Ada Muhakkama. Does anyone know what the fifth principle is? For those of you that attended uh, Sacred Scrolls, my first class in Calgary, we discussed it at that time. You have, you have prizes for us, mashallah. Anyone remember what the fifth and last principle is that the Sharia is based upon? Sorry? No. Jazakallah had a very good guess, but that's not it. What is the fifth principle? Go ahead. Very good, very good. Good guess, but that's not the answer. So you're saying that the general rule in worldly affairs is permissibility. The general rule in ibadah is impermissibility. Again, it is a very common principle, but that is not the fifth principle. The fifth principle. I'll let you guys think about it. I'll let you guys think about it, and Bidinai Ta'ala will share it at the end of the class. If you figure it out before the end of the class, then Bidinai Ta'ala, we will, we will give you a prize. We will give you a prize. Continuing on with the hadith. Continuing on with the hadith. So here the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he goes on to say, فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ That whoever's migration is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then his migration was for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his Messenger. So firstly, let us talk about this concept of hijrah. The general concept of hijrah, when you talk about hijrah, it is to distance yourself from something. It is to distance yourself from something. And in Sahih al-Bukhari, Imam al-Bukhari narrates that the muhajir is the one that separates himself from sin. The muhajir is the one that separates himself from sin. Now this is the type of hijrah that is compulsory upon everyone. That in the presence of sin, the presence of you know, bad desires, you have to separate yourself from that sin, you have to fight it off. Now the hijrah that is being referred to in this hadith is not the hijrah of the soul. It is not the hijrah of fighting off desires. 
but rather it is the hijrah which is physically made, which is physically made. Now, the scholars of Islam, they actually divided this hijrah into six types. They said physical types of hijrah are of six types, six types. They said category number one is that when you make hijrah from Dar al-Kufr to Dar al-Islam, that you make hijrah from the lands of disbelief to the lands of Islam. Hijrah from lands of disbelief to the lands of Islam. And we'll comment on these briefly. Number two, they said hijrah from the land of innovation to the land of sunnah. So hijrah from the lands of innovation to the lands of sunnah. Number three, hijrah from the lands where haram is dominant to a land where haram is not dominant. Hijrah from a land where haram is dominant to a land where haram is not dominant. Number four, Hijrah from a place where one fears bodily harm to a place where one does not fear bodily harm. So number four, a person fears bodily harm and he migrates from that place to a place he does not fear bodily harm. Number five, Hijrah from a place where one fears disease to a place where he does not fear disease. So Hijrah from a place where he fears disease to Hijrah to a place where he does not fear disease. And the sixth and last category of Hijrah that the scholars mention is that hijrah from a place where a man fears for his property and wealth to a place where he does not fear for his property and wealth. So in terms of the physical hijrah, this is what the scholars divided it down to. That the six possible types of religious hijrah, they would fall under one of these six categories. That if you were to make any of these six types of hijrah, they would be um, from you know, the religious types of hijrah. Now what are the virtues of this religious type of hijrah? For those of you that attended the Jummah Khutbah today, you heard the hadith of Amr ibn al-As, where he wanted to give the Pledge of Allegiance to the Messenger of Allah and he says, Ya Rasulullah, I will only give this Pledge of Allegiance with one condition. The Messenger of Allah asked him, what is this condition, Ya Amr? He said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive me for all of my sins. So at that point, the Prophet told him, Ya Amr, did you not know that a person accepting Islam forgives all of his sins? A person making hijrah, all of his sins are forgiven. And a person who makes hajj, all of his sins are forgiven. So here from the virtues of hajj, is that a person who migrates for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive all of his previous sins. Now, the first one in this hadith is the most important one. The first one in this hadith is the most important, the first type of hijrah. And that is the hijrah where a person will migrate from the lands of disbelief to the lands of Islam, to the lands of Islam. So generally speaking, it is a very common and popular opinion that states that you're not allowed to live in the lands of disbelief until one of three conditions are met. Until one of three conditions are met. Condition number one is that you're active in giving da'wah. Condition number one is that you're active in giving da'wah. If you're not active in giving da'wah, then you should be seeking a form of education to benefit the Muslims where you are going back to. Then it is to seek a form of education to benefit the Muslims where you are going back to. And condition number three is that if you're not doing one of these two, then you're here to get some sort of medical treatment that is not available. You're here to get some sort of medical treatment that is not available. Now even though this opinion is very, very popular amongst the laymen, this is not the opinion of the vast majority of scholars. In fact, one of the scholars who died recently, Sheikh Albani rahimahullah, he died in around 420, 421, uh, sorry, 1420 or 1421. Um, he is the one that made this opinion very, very popular. And his students made it, made it very, very popular. But in terms of when you look at the text of the uh, Quran and the text of the Sunnah, 
you see that what the Sharia stipulates is that any place that you're allowed to freely practice your religion, then that is a place that you're allowed to reside. Any place that you're freely allowed to practice your religion, then that is a place that you're allowed to reside. Because the verses in the Quran in particular that talk about, you know, is the earth of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not vast enough for you? It is pertaining to those individuals that were unable to practice their religion. It is pertaining to those individuals that were unable to practice their religion. Likewise, if you look in terms of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where he says, you know, a Muslim should not live in a place where the smoke of the disbelievers and the smoke of the believers mix. Or the hadith of, you know, I am free from the, from the one who dies in, in, a, in a land of the, the disbelievers. All of these narrations, while they're very, very popular, they have weaknesses in them. They have weaknesses in them. Now, what is the conclusion that we want to sum up over here? The conclusion we want to sum up over here is that each and every one of us is the best, uh, best of judges according to his own situation. One group of individuals, they may go to the land of the Muslims and their iman actually plummets. Their iman actually goes down. Another group of individuals, they stay in the land of disbelief and it is their iman that plummets over here. So you have to look at what is best for you and your family. If you notice that your family does best and you know, reaches its pinnacle while being in the land of the Muslims, then this is what we would suggest. However, if you notice that you're more productive, you have more to offer, your iman is higher, living you know, amongst the disbelievers, you're active giving da'wah, or you're doing other productive and beneficial things, then we would recommend that this person stays over here. But now, let us look at it from another angle. The vast majority of people that talk about hijrah, mashallah, generally speaking, we will say that they're the more religious crowd, they're the ones that come to the masjid, they're the ones that are active in giving da'wah. Now, even though this is physically impossible, let us just say each and every one of these individuals was to get up and migrate. Even though there's no place that would allow all of these people to come and migrate, but theoretically speaking, let us just say there is. These people get up and migrate, what happens to the situation of the Muslims living in the land of disbelievers? What ends up happening over here is, no one's coming to the masjid anymore. There's no people to give any form of religious education, no one to lead the salah, no one to give the khutbas. And you notice the situation even keeps getting worse and worse. Then over here, we would say that a person is required to make an individual sacrifice for the greater community good, for the greater community good. So all of these people, we will not allow them to make hijrah for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rather some of them would have to stay back. Rather some of them would have to stay back. And this is based upon the verse in Surah At-Tawbah, which I'm trying to remember right now. Do you remember the verse I'm talking about? لِيَتَفَقَّهُ فِي الدِّينِ how does the beginning start off? So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about people who are going out to fight for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, let a group of people stay behind and you know, practice their religion and learn about their religion so that when the people who are fighting have come back, they can educate them about their deen. They can educate them about their deen. So all of the practicing Muslims, if they were to get up and migrate, we would say that no, this is not an act which is permissible. Rather, a group of people would have to stay behind and educate the people. A group of people would have to stay behind and educate the people. So that is the issue of hijrah. So this is what is mentioned. Uh, 
And then it goes on to say, وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ لِلدُّنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا أَوَ إِمْرَأَةً يَنْكِهُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَجْرَةً إِلَيْهِ Then he whose migration was for the sake of this, for a worldly purpose, or for the sake of marrying, then his, in, then his migration was that which he migrated for. Then his migration was that which he migrated for. So now here, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is alluding to something. And what he is alluding to over here is that migration can also have a non-religious type. Migration can also have a non-religious type. And that is an individual, he intends something worldly from it. And this type of migration, it is permissible. The general case scenario, as we mentioned, one of the brothers mentioning, is that when it comes to worldly matters, the origin in worldly matters is that they are permissible until proven to be haram. That they are permissible until proven to be haram. So the general case scenario is that a person is allowed to migrate for a worldly purpose. So for example, a person is living in Canada, he wants to get you know, an education in England, he is allowed to migrate from Canada to England to get this you know, worldly benefit. Will he be rewarded for this benefit? Unless he makes a righteous intention behind it, then no, he won't be rewarded. His only compensation will be that which he migrated for, i.e. the education that he is trying to get. Now, Coming up to the point, why does the Messenger of Allah mention, وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ لِلدُّنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا أَوْ إِمْرَأَةٍ يَنْكِهُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَجْرَ إِلَيْهِ Why does he mention something general and then mention something specific? So a woman, she is a part of the dunya. A, woman, a man migrates for the sake of you know, getting married. This is something which is permissible. But this sake of marriage is a worldly matter. It is a worldly matter. So why does the Messenger of Allah mention the woman after mentioning the dunya. Can anyone think of a wisdom? Why would the mention, Messenger of Allah mention the woman after having mentioned the dunya? Go ahead. Man, this better not be one of your Facebook posts or something like that. <laughs> Go ahead. Excellent. Excellent. It's the exact same concept. Why does the Messenger of Allah mention فَاتَّقُوا الدُّنْيَا وَاتَّقُوا النِّسَاء you're telling me the hadith, but what is the lesson we're trying to derive from? I want you to derive the lesson. It's very easy, very simple. Go ahead. Very close, but I needed a, just a general, general principle. Go ahead. Women are attracted to people of wealth. <laughs> MashaAllah, tabarakallah. This is the next level of fiqh. <laughs> that is very true. Generally speaking, women love a man that has confidence in him. And a man will get his confidence through his wealth. That is very true. But how did you derive this from the hadith? I was just because like, world if you get that, it goes basis for you and then the then the woman will come, mashallah. So you make hijrah for the dunya, and you'll naturally get the woman. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but inshallah khair. The principle we're trying to get to, is as this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, where the brother mentioned, that the Messenger of Allah mentions at the end of that hadith, that fear the dunya and fear the women, or have taqwa of the dunya and abstain from the women, because the first fitna that was sent to Bani Israel was in women. What that means is, that the greatest fitna a man will face, is through the temptation and desire of women. And subhanAllah, how many stories throughout history do we find that a man ends up going astray due to him, you know, getting involved with the wrong woman. You have the famous hadith, uh, the story 
of Abdurrazak al-Sanani. So uh, this is a story I mentioned to you, that the next up and coming class is torchbearers. And in torchbearers you learn about some of the scholars of the past. One of the scholars of the past, his name was Abdurrazak al-Sanani. Abdurrazak al-Sanani, famous scholar of hadith and contemporary of Imam Ahmad, very close relationship. In fact, he was considered one of the imams of hadith. What ends up happening is, he travels to the land of Yemen. And Abdul Razak al-Sanani, being one of the great Imams, he falls in love with this woman, he ends up marrying this woman. Lo and behold, he ends up developing some of the, some beliefs of how did that happen? It happened through him getting married to this woman. You have the famous story that Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah mentions in Al-Kaba'ir. That the story of the Mu'addin who used to go to the top of the minaret and give the Adhan. And then one day he ends up seeing from the minaret this beautiful woman. And he's struck that you can imagine like halfway through the Adhan, He's like, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, and then he just stops. And people are like, what happened to this guy? Why did he stop the Adhan? What happened was he became mesmerized with this woman. So he finishes the Adhan, he goes and proposes to this woman, and this woman says, look, I'm a practicing Christian, and we cannot get married until you become Christian, until you can be, until you become Christian. So the man, uh, you know, time goes back and forth. He eventually decides, you know what? He's going to become Christian. He's going to become Christian. And then he goes to propose to this woman, and this woman says that a man cannot, that cannot be you know, strong upon his faith, how is he going to be strong for And she denies his proposal at that time. And what ends up happening is he ends up dying in that state. Something happened later on, he ends up dying in that state, in the state of having left the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fitna of women over here. So now this is not to say that, you know, this is being recorded in his life. It is not to say that women are evil. That's not the point we're trying to get at, that I'm sure someone may try to, you know, twist my words into saying. But what we're trying to say here is that the greatest weakness that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created inside the man is for women. And this is what Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, he says in the verse in Surah An-Nisa, وَخُلِقَ الْإِنسَانُ ضَعِيفَ That man was created weak towards women, that his greatest weakness is towards women. And this is why the Messenger of Allah from time and time again, after he mentions the dunya, he'll mention the woman. So just like a man is meant to have taqwa regarding the dunya, he's meant to have taqwa regarding women as well. And it's not just the fear of attraction, it's also when a man gets married in a halal way, one of the reasons why men will be humiliated and disgraced in the hereafter is because they're not taking care of their women folk. That they treated their women folk terribly. This is one of the reasons why that they will be punished in the hereafter. And this is why the Messenger of Allah so heavily emphasized خيركم, خيركم that the best of you are the best of you towards their women folk. And this shows you that subhanAllah as a man, you have this great responsibility. And one way, it is to stay away from the haram aspect of it. And then number two, is that the second aspect of it, that as a man, you need to fulfill the rights of your family as well. You need to fulfill the rights of your family as well. And this is why the dunya and women are paired closely together, that the Messenger of Allah advises to have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in both of these matters. Have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in both of these matters. And we'll conclude with that because we do have a couple of uh, announcements to make and uh, a couple of other matters as well. But before that, we'll open up the floor for questions and answers. So, sallallahu alayhi wa barak ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Go ahead. We'll, open up, we'll take five questions, inshallah. Is it uh, la darara wa Did you look that up? You knew it yourself? Excellent. So that is the fifth principle. We can give him that prize, inshallah. The fifth principle is la darara wa la dirar which is that you are not to harm 
and you're not to allow harm to be reciprocated to you. You're not to harm, and you're not to allow harm to be reciprocated to you. So this shows us that one of the principles of the Sharia is that it is impermissible to harm, and at the same time, if someone is harming you, we don't just turn the other cheek, but rather we do what is required to protect ourselves from that harm. So that is the fifth principle. Now these five principles together are known as Al-Qawaid Al-Kubra, the five major principles that if you were to look across all of the books of fiqh, these are the five reoccurring themes that you will find in all aspects of fiqh. Those are Al-Qawaid Al-Kubra and you will be tested on those next week with Allah Ta'ala. So I would suggest that at least one of you memorizes them properly inshallah. Go ahead. Oh, well, let's see. Hey, who wrote about these five principles? So when were these five principles first written? So the first individual to actually you know, write these five principles down as five principles, his name was uh, Sultan al-Ulama al-Izz bin Abdul Salam. He was given this title Sultan al-Ulama because he mastered the Shafi'i and the Hanafi Madhab from Egypt and it was a very rare concept at that time. And then um, he wrote this book, I can't remember the beginning of it, but Fi Masalih al-Anam. That in this book he talks about Al-Qawaid Al-Fiqhiyah and this is one of the first books that talks about these five major principles. And then it just further got developed after that. And you'll notice that SubhanAllah, um, it was particularly the Hanafi scholars that you know, actually took this concept of you know, Al-Qawaid Al-Fiqhiyah very, very far. That they wrote extensively on these principles and obviously they aren't the only five principles, but these are the five principles that all of the Madhahib agreed upon that you know, are a recurring theme inside of Fiqh. Oh yeah, no problem, inshallah. Go ahead. You said Yaqeen la yazul bishak and you give example for the Somal who are down to the Kustan. Yes. So we gave two examples over here. Number one, the person who is starting his prayer and he is doubtful, does he have wudu or not? Right? So this individual, no, he's not to continue praying. He has to go and make wudu and then come back and pray. But the yaqeen over here is that he doesn't have wudu. And then the shak is that he has wudu. So the yaqeen takes precedence over the shak. So he goes and makes wudu and he comes back. Then scenario number two, we said a person, he made wudu, he started his salah, and he has yaqeen that he did make wudu, but his shak is, my stomach is hurting, it's growling. Did I break my wudu or not? In this situation, we say that the yaqeen is tahara, and then the shak is, you know, naqdul tahara. So the tahara takes precedence over the naqdul tahara, and he remains in salah until yaqeen comes to him that his tahara was broken. My question is, sometimes we have this also, sometimes like you have doubt if you, if you still have your wudu or not. So if you still have your wudu, you come to pray and him... So here what you need to figure out is what is your yaqeen? Is your yaqeen that I made wudu, or is your yaqeen that I didn't make wudu? If you sorry? Yeah, but this is, the, the, this is what they said, the ulama, but I don't know, maybe you know for sure. So they said, if you, if you have this doubt, then, then, then you, still, uh, you still have your wudu. You, continue, you keep continuing your prayer and you don't have to go and to, to make another wudu. This all goes back to? <laughs> it depends over here. This I'm explaining it to you. It all depends on, did the person make, does he remember making wudu or not? If he remembers making wudu, then his yaqeen is that he made wudu. If he doesn't remember making wudu, then his yaqeen is that he didn't make wudu. So in the case that his yaqeen is that he made wudu, he doesn't need to make wudu again. In the second case scenario where his yaqeen is that he didn't make wudu, then he has to go make wudu and come back. Wallahu ta'ala ala. How can you not know if your wudu broke? 
Okay, so see, that's the thing. If he doesn't remember, then he remains upon certainty. He remains upon certainty until he remembers. If he remembers later on, that is a different matter. But up until the time he doesn't remember, he remains upon his, his certainty. That which is Yaqeen. Go ahead, Abdurrahman. approach to it. Excellent. So uh, last week when we were talking about using weak hadith, we mentioned an important principle that in any field of Islam, you always want to look at what the experts of that field have to say. <laughs> so when you're dealing with issues of hadith, you want to see what the experts of hadith have to say about it, rather than going to the scholars of usul fiqh or the scholars of fiqh. And not to discredit them completely, but we always want to go to the most proficient people. So in this situation, you'll notice that the early scholars of hadith, the likes of Imam Ahmad, Yahya ibn Ma'in, Ali ibn al-Madini, Bukhari, Muslim, all these scholars of hadith, they didn't have this categorization of mutawatir and ahad. And for them, it was irrelevant did it give certainty or did it give doubt? This is actually, you know, a trick that was introduced inside matters of fiqh to deceive the people. That was introduced to deceive the people. So what we want to try to do is, we want to try to avoid using this terminology. Now obviously when discussing from a fiqh perspective, people will use this terminology so it's good to be aware of it. But as a Muslim what you want to try to do is avoid using terminology that those that are specialists in their field did not use. Similarly, when you're talking about Islamic manners, you know, uh, matters, you want to refer to the terminology of the Sharia rather than man-made terminology, right? So it's better to use the terminology of the Qur'an, use the terminology of the Sunnah and avoid terminology that is not found in those two. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Go ahead. Yes. Bad. He doesn't do it, it would be done for him as a Excellent, excellent. So the general case scenario is that when you have something which is general, this is meant to be understood in light of something which is specific. So the general hadith is what you have mentioned over here, is that the one who had an evil intention and he didn't do it, then he has one reward written for him. But this is, has to be understood in light of something which is specific, which is the principle that we mentioned over here. So what this hadith is actually saying is that if someone intends to do evil, and then it is the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that stops him, then he will be rewarded for this. What is the proof for this? The proof for this is the hadith of the three men that went to the cave. And they were inside the cave and they got stuck inside and they said that the only way we'll get out is if we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through our righteous deeds, right? The first man, he was obedient to his parents. The third man, he was an, a trustworthy businessman. The second man though, he was an individual that fell in love with a woman who was very desperate for money. So he said, come over to my place, we will be in seclusion and I will give you the money. And this woman, now when she comes, she's desperate for this money, she needs the money, there's no way out for him, but she tells him something. She says, That fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you know, do not pierce the seal of virginity, except with this due right. Meaning that if you want to do this deed, marry me, but don't do it in a haram manner. So this man said, I remembered Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I left her with the money. 
And this was accounted as a good deed for the man. So the scholars derived from this hadith that in order for a bad intention to be rewarded for it, a person has to abandon that deed for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when he abandons the deed for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is when an evil intention, he will be rewarded for it as well. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. We'll take one last question, and then we'll, two last questions, and go ahead. To you and you. So go ahead. Right, so this principle, Al-Adam Muhakkamah, that norms of a people take precedence, this is something which is very, very subjective as you can see. There's no objective guidelines to this principle. The only objective guideline that we will apply over here is that it only becomes completely impermissible to go against the norms of a people when it comes to matters of halal and haram. So for example, it is a customary norm in all of society that everyone is getting tattoos. That you go to high school these days, you go to colleges these days, go to universities, almost everyone is getting a tattoo. You show up as a Muslim and you're like, man, you know, the principle says, Al-Adam Muhakkamah, I should go get a tattoo now. But in reality, no, this is not the case. Because the Sharia has given very clear guidelines that when it comes to matters of halal and haram, you don't conform with the norm. So in matters of that are outside of the scope of halal and haram, you should conform to the norm. But when it comes to matters of halal and haram, you can conform to that which is halal and haram. I hope that makes sense, inshallah. Yeah, and Islam, it actually encourages people to follow their cultures. As long as it doesn't oppose the sharia, Islam encourages the following of cultures. So as long as it does not oppose the sharia, a person should follow his culture. So, for example, you know, especially when it comes to marriages, they have all types of different traditions. As long as those traditions don't go against, you know, the uh, rulings of halal and haram, he should definitely follow those traditions, inshallah. Wallahu ta'ala ala. What was your last question? Um, what if someone has a good intention and he does something bad? Explain. Uh, like the story so like a mistake, you mean? No, like the story of the bee who came to the Prophet and they told him, like I don't marry women and I, I, keep, I stay fasting. They have like good intention which is because they wanted to. They said the Prophet is... Right. Ahsant, Ahsant. So the question over here is a person thinks he's doing good, but in reality he's not doing good. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, he has a very famous statement. He says, That how many people intend to do good, but in reality never achieve it. And this is the type of thing that he's actually referring to. That in order for a good deed to actually be a good deed, two conditions need to be met, right? Condition number one is that it is sincere for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And condition number two, it has to be in accordance to the actions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So what's happening in this hadith over here is that even though these people had righteous intentions, it actually goes against the conformity of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that is what that statement means. That it will come in muridin bil khayri lam yabluhu, that how many people intend to do good but don't reach it is that their intentions are pure, but their actions are not substantiated by the actions of the Prophet So those are the two conditions that need to be met before a deed can be considered a good deed. My question is just, do they get uh, punished for that? Do they get punished for it? Do they get sent? That is between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their level of knowledge. So the general case scenario, if a person is ignorant, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will excuse them. That is the general case scenario. However, other factors can come into play, but the general case scenario is 
that if they are ignorant, they will be forgiven. If they did it intentionally, then this is something that they are sinful for and they will be punished. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best.